0: The Truth of Poetry, Reflections on Virgil's Aeneid by Gil Bailey, produced by the Cornerstone Forum, Part 2. Our series is called The The Truth of Poetry and the Poetry of Truth. We're going to look at the Virgil's Aeneid and at the Gospel of Luke. What I want to do today is continue the overview that I began last week thinking about what poetry is and what the truth of poetry is. And I want to begin with a florilegia of quotations. Random, I must say, widely varied cluster of quotations. The matter before us does not, as with so many matters that we deal with here, does not lend itself to a nice little logical or sequential progression. And therefore, one has to move in and out and circle around and come back and and weave things in and out, and so for those who feel better about a kind of outlined form, it's absolutely maddening. It's maddening to me, too, you know, but I don't know of any other way to do it. So I know of no other way to do it that really touches on the issue. You could present it in some kind of logical way, but I don't think you would feel it. In an effort to try to have us feel it as well as think about it, I'm using this circumambulation. So here are the quotations to sort of get us into the issue, which is the issue of the truth of poetry. what What is poetry? We should start asking fundamental questions. Often we don't ask really fundamental questions. We ask secondary questions because we assume that all the fundamental questions have already been answered. And therefore, it would be embarrassing to ask them. Uh, it would show our ignorance when, in fact, we need to ask the fundamental questions. What is poetry? Where does it come from? What does it do? What what purpose has it served? And so on. Well, oddly enough, I'd like to begin that uh, inquiry by quoting to you something that Thomas Friedman said in his Foreign Affairs column on the op-ed page of the New York Times yesterday. He began his column this way. There is a dictum in the Babylonian Talmud about the virtues of compromise that goes like this. Where there is complete truth, there is no peace. And where there is peace, there is no complete truth. End quote. And then Friedman says, What the ancient sages were trying to say was that seeking perfect justice for your community or cause might be ideologically satisfying, but it's not compatible with peace because peace is built of compromises painted in shades of gray. Quote. Well, yes and no, I would say. Let's let's put it this way. Where there is complete truth, there is no peace. Where there is peace, there is no complete truth. And I would say that would certainly be the case in what I would generally call the old dispensation, uh, the old order, the old cultural arrangements. And the reason for that is that if you go back far enough and you really discover the truth, this, that, or the other subgroup within a cultural framework will discover that it has a legitimate grievance. The weight of that grievance being such that it is worth disturbing the social order in order to have it met, to have it repaid. And so if we had perfect 2020 vision on the things that have happened in the past, we would constantly be carrying forward these grievances and rehashing them and throwing the existing cultural uh, conventions into some kind of chaos. Now, in the old order, the idea was you, if you want peace, you can't have the whole truth. You, you have to let that recede into the mists of history and not constantly revive it. Now, I would say that's not entirely true. The gospel, anthropologically, the gospel is a searcher for truth. And it has a tracer that is the essential one, I think, and the one that always goes to where the hidden truth is. And the tracer is the concern for the victim. And so when it looks back, it will always find like, I mean, I hate to use a military metaphor here, you know, but it's like the heat-seeking missile, you know, that just crawls right up the tailpipe of the airplane that's trying to shoot down. Well, the gospel has this nose for where's the victim in there. Oh, well, it looks like a great big... uh, a carnival, everybody's happy, everybody's pleased, but wait a second, where's the victim? Where did this camaraderie come from? How was it generated? Where's the corpse? See, This is the kind of question that the gospel unleashes on the world. And it's one that will not be satisfied, if it's really a full-blown version of this virus, it will not be satisfied by the kind of practical wisdom contained in the Babylonian Talmud, which said, better not know the whole truth. We want to keep peace. So we have, we have this problem. If the gospel is not going to abide by that Talmudic wisdom, then it's going to have to have some other way of making it possible to have complete truth and peace at the same time. Again, painting with a broad brush, it does. It's forgiveness. In the old order of things, forgiveness is not only not part of the system, it's actually excluded. It's explicitly excluded because the most sacred duty in the old order is to avenge the wrongful death of one's clansmen, or something to that effect. The vengeance system, in conjunction with the shame system, has a very powerful dampening effect on social violence because one knows if I commit or my clan commits violence, then violence will be committed against me or or my clan and so on. So that it functions to reduce social violence, this vengeance system or system of revenge. But you cannot introduce forgiveness into that system of revenge without throwing it all into chaos. Christopher Dawson, in his study of the way in which Christianity broke into pagan Europe at the end of the Dark Age uh, and began to spread, talks about the last holdouts were in the Scandinavian countries of the old pagan system. And there were kings who had undergone some kind of conversion at some level. Uh, and these kings began to pardon those that had uh, transgressed against them by invading or by uh, plotting their overthrow or something. And they began pardoning these people. And the people rose up and, and killed the king. Because it, you can't have that in the old order of things. But in the new order of things, you can't have anything else. If you, if you do away with the old order and you don't introduce forgiveness, all is lost. All is lost because the wisdom of the Babylonian Talmud comes into play precisely there. You have all these grievances that we're perfectly aware of because we've traced them all back to the victim. And now, if we don't forgive one another, we'll be at each other's throats. That's In some way, that's what the culture wars in, in, in the Western world today are all about. Of, you know who gets to chan- who's championing which victim, and who has the best claim to victim status, and who can uh, take the moral high ground, and so on, and uh, who has to pay, you know, for having done it in the past. Okay, so that's one thing. Now we're just talking about poetry, and what poetry does. Classical poetry, poetry in its original sense, is inspired by the muses. Their mother is Mnemosyne. the The name means memory. The muses are all the children of memory and they are the agents of memory, but a special kind of memory, we went over this last week, they gussy up the memory. They make it reassuring. They make it socially galvanizing and ennobling and inspiring and so on and so forth. And so the poets work under the inspiration of the muses, remembering the past. And so that's why we have to think about how the... Work of poetry fits into all this. So the second quotation is from Christopher Fry's play *The Dark Is Light Enough*. The play is set during the uh, Hungarian-Austrian War during the winter of 1848 and 49. The chief character, the one which seems to me to be the personification of the spirit of the church, although there's no ref- whether well, there are references to that in the text of the play, but they're oblique and cagey references. Uh, Nevertheless, her name is Countess Rosemarin Ostenberg, and she is a real piece of work, uh, this woman is. Anyway, she kind of comes and goes, and nobody can figure out what she's up to. Her uh, home is on, her estate is right on the boundary between the warring factions. So she's, I think, Fry's attempt to situate the church in the modern world. Reprise writing this after World War II. And uh, she comes in, and sooner or later, you know, the partisans show up, the the Austrians and the Hungarians, represented by characters in the play. And they're at each other's throat. And uh, uh, the countess's housekeeper is befuddled by all this. She can't figure it out. So she says to the countess, who started this war anyway? Where did it all begin? And the countess says the following, quote, a lot of time would be wasted going back through the years to answer that. We could scarcely be of our own time if we would, being moved about by such very old disturbances. If we could wake each morning with no memory of living before we went to sleep, we might arrive at a faultless day once in a great many. But the hardest frost of a year will not arrest the growing world as blame and the memory of wrong will do, end quote. So she's echoing a little bit the Babylonian Talmud. She's saying, in in a sense, what all this boils down to is if you're up to the really demanding task of forgiveness, then you can remember it right down to the last jot and tittle. But if you're not, best let bygones be bygones. Let it recede into the Mm mist. Now, again, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, the gospel imperative is a building force in the world. If the laser beam of the gospel is shown on the past, it will go to find the victim and it will expose them. And the first victims it will look for will be the victims of the Christian. You see? Because it starts with its own. That's, That's the marvel of it. That's, that's why we in the Western world, are all of us have heard zillions of times about the atrocities performed by the Christians. There were plenty of them. But that's because the gospel starts with itself, with its own representatives, and it's a critique of things. Nevertheless, what the Countess is saying is, uh, and she's speaking you know, to these people who are at each other's throat, not exactly in the mood of forgiveness, so she says, let's not get into it. Let's get into it if we can be forgiving. These two quotes so far have connected a little bit. The next one, less so, but it moves us a little more towards a discussion of Virgil. Uh, And this is from uh, Ricardo Quinones, who's a Dante scholar, uh, and he writes the following. We are accustomed to making very radical separations between what we consider classical and what Christian. And we are right in doing so because they do represent different dimensions that amount to a break in history, a great divide, uh, to which in Dante's poem, Virgil dramatically falls victim. Uh, you know, in the Divine Comedy, Virgil is the guide for Dante through the inferno and purgatorio, and then he's dismissed because gets to, there's a point at which he simply is out of his league because he remains in the classical pre-Christian world and so he is, has to be left behind in favor of Beatrice and uh, St. Bernard and so on. The divide between the classical and Christian is a valid one. And, but as we try to deepen our understanding of this very real fissure, we find a core of common culture, a singular event to which each of these interpretations of life are responsive each is responding to the same event a quote dark event as it has been called and it has been he he gets that dark event from a discussion published in a, a book called violent origins uh, edited by hamilton kelly it's a discussion by the zurich philologist walter burkert and uh, rené girard about cultural origins and Burkert speaks in there of various myths that talk about festivals and carnivals and so on. But he says, you read these myths, and you realize that there's a dark background to them. And so Burkert's term for that was joy with a dark background. Or in another place, he wonders what that dark event is that hovers in the background of all of this celebration. So again, Quinones says, Both the classical and the Christian world are responding, and we could say here now the poetic enterprise in both the classical and the Christian world is rooted finally in the dark event. And uh, Quinona says, each is responding to the same event, a dark event, as it has been called, at the core of existence. We should probably say there, at the core of culture and history. And then, then Quinones says, this event is the foundation sacrifice. And he goes on, quote, Christian philosophers were not ignorant of this event and did not shy away from it. In fact, they chose to confront it, turning it into an anti-myth, that is, an accounting of things that they must reject in order to define themselves, end quote. It's a little bit complicated, but structurally it's quite simple. There's an event at the origin of all culture. It's the mob killing the victim. It's the same event that gives rise to conventional culture, and it's the same event that gives rise to a Christian counterculture, you could say. Counter- the term counterculture is used. It's wrong because it's not, it's not a counterculture in the sense of being contra the, the existing culture. It's not scandalized by the existing culture. It's not in some kind of double relationship, some kind of antagonistic relationship with conventional culture. It's simply what it is, but it's rooted in the same event. The Passion Story in the Crucifixion is simply the oldest story in the world being experienced from the point of view of the victim for the first time. Always before that was experienced from the point of view of the victimizing community. And in the Passion story, it's experienced from the point of view of the victim. And moreover, the, those who thus experience it come to realize that the suffering of the victim is the suffering of the God of love who's trying to break in on the world. So, I mean, this is a lot of theolo- there are lots of theological issues here. But nevertheless, I think that's what Quinones is saying, that there's a great divide, and that the great divide occurs with the Christian revelation, and the Great Divide has to do with the old arrangement, which was based on foundational sacrifice, and the new Christian cultural enterprise, which is an anthropological experiment in founding a culture by recognizing the sinfulness of the killers, rather than celebrating their newfound camaraderie. So, the foundation sacrifice in Christian culture is a moral abomination. All who recognize that founding event for what it is realize that they are complicit with the murderer. We are the crucifier. And moreover, they recognize, because the text tells them so, that the victim forgave everybody with his dying breath. Father forgive them for they know not what they did. This is absolutely incredible. Had that not happened, take that one sentence out of the gospel text. And there are plenty of others that indicate that Jesus' mission to the world was one of forgiveness and so on. But it's one thing to see that in the ministry. It's another thing to see that at the moment of the crucifixion, at the moment of death, just before death, to say, forgive them for they know not what they do. Is, that makes all the difference, you see. Okay, now, so we now we have to think about poetry and what poetry does, classical poetry and modern poetry, and then we'll try to figure out where Virgil fits into all this. So I said poets are inspired to remember by the muses, classical poets. And if the real divide in the world is the divide between those who remember things according to the muses and those who remember them according to the paraclete or the Holy Spirit, paraclete means the defender of the accused, Satan is the word for accusation. The word Satan means the accuser. So the paraclete is always the one who goes to look to see where the accusation is aimed and who got blamed, how, where the blame was that gave rise to the social camaraderie. So we have two kinds of forms of memory. Uh, and then we have the, the issue of the poetic elusiveness. There's something about the elusiveness of poetry. That elusiveness is either highly suspect or of great spiritual value. And it all depends on whether the muses are in charge or the paraclete is in charge. It's highly suspect if the muses are in charge because it's a cover-up, it's a dodge. It's a way of telling a story that ought to shock us and make us contrite in such a la-di-da way that it makes us feel good. That's the muses. And so the elusiveness of poetry under that impulse needs to be critiqued. But there's another kind of elusiveness, which has another role to play in the world. Now, let me kind of sneak up on that issue this way. John Keats said, so this is another florilagia of quotation. John Keats said, I think poetry should appear almost a remembrance, which itself is a kind of haunting poetic way of talking. It should appear almost as a remembrance, as though one reads it or hears it and says, "Ah, yes, I knew that. I just didn't know that I knew that. See, I didn't. I knew it, but I didn't know that I knew it." Now, John Keats is writing. Not that all his poems would qualify as unalloyed uh, products of the paraclete. Nevertheless, he he's very much living in a in a world in which that's the dominant epistemology, if you let me use that mostly academic word. Robert Frost says it similarly, and perhaps not as well, but nevertheless, it's worth quoting. He says, It is our business to give people the thing that will make them say, Oh, yes, I know what you mean. It is never to tell them something they don't know, but something they know and hadn't thought of saying. It must be something they recognize. So again, it's almost a memory, almost a remembrance. What is it that we know but don't really know, which we need to know more fully in order to discover the truth about ourselves and about our world? We know but we don't really know something that we need to know more fully in order to know something important about ourselves and our world. And what is it? Well, you know what it is. I've been talking about it for ten years. Uh, my friend Andrew McKinney Last week, I quoted him, and he's the one who t- wrote that paper on Pascal. You know it, and Pascal says you better not look back because you'll find a corpse, and you'll, uh, you know, the the uh, the those who identify with that corpse will you know, raise up their arms against those who are in power because of the corpse and pretty soon you'll have civil war and it'll destroy everything. So let bygones be bygones. Andrew in his paper says that the human culture is, quote, an illusory but efficacious hierarchy of differences and representations of differences, of images whose fanciful prestige kept humans from slaughtering each other. Best not look back at that. Best let it go. Classical poetry, tells the story in such a way as to keep the moral problem represented by these dark events in the past from surfacing. Or to go back to what Quinones is talking about, observation of Walter Burkert, who says, these ancient myths, and he quotes a number of them in his discussion, he says, these ancient myths, they're all all this happy carnivalesque thing going on, but nevertheless, there's this, you, you almost hear a, a, some kind of heavy leitmotif going on in the background of this thing, and one wonders, what is this thing? And, and writing under the influence of the muses, one obscures that. Modern poetry, not that we are here to talk about modern poetry, but in a way we have to see where Virgil fits in. Christians always thought of Virgil as a pagan prophet. He is one for reasons that are quite complicated, literary reasons, and that is he is exhausting his mythological reservoir in writing his great epic, and he's spilling the beans more than a pagan poet ought. Uh, He says things and knows things that it's not good for somebody operating under the impulse of the muses to to know or to say, and about foundational sacrifice, what Quinones calls foundational sacrifice. So that's amazing. Now... In the ancient world, the purpose of po- the poetic inspiration... The poetic inspiration is a, a vehicle for, for reviving and uh, intensifying a sense of belonging to the community. It tells, it sings the old stories, it sings the anthems, the hymns that make us realize uh, we are a people. Modern poetry makes us aware of the fact that we are, to some degree, alien with respect to conventional culture, and it helps us find one another. It helps the cultural orphans find one another and try to understand the source of their orphanhood. (coughs) Owen Barfield is another philologist, English philologist, who wrote a really fascinating little book called... um, poetic diction many, many years ago. And in it, he says the experience that poetry provides is is very much like the experience you have in an elevator when it goes very quickly from one floor to the next. And the only way to have that experience again is to get in the elevator and go from one floor to the next again. You can't then turn it into something other than that. It's the experience at that moment of shifting to another perspective, another level of realization. And I would correlate that with Keats and uh, Frost and those who say it, uh, poetry it has something to do with a remembrance. is bringing, making a, a memory that is latent, vivid, and clarifying it. Uh, and the memory, of course, may be an emotional memory, but giving it some kind of present clarification that has this effect of suddenly coming up out of the fog, and feeling something, you see. The elusiveness of classical poetry is suspect because it's the elusiveness of the muse. I think the elusiveness of poetry under the impulse of a paraclete is extremely important because the discovery that poetry tries to facilitate should have its epicenter in the reader, not in the writer prose explication can be a form of revelation that has its epicenter in the writer. Poetry under the impulse of the paraclete, of the Holy Spirit, is a revelation, can be a revelation. But it's not to be a revelation only in the sense of a cognitive awareness or an intellectual breakthrough. It has to be a revelation at the level of one's being. And so its epicenter has to be in the reader, not the writer. And in order for that to happen, the writer has to leave enough unsaid so that the transaction, the revelatory transaction, is completed by the reader. And that's just exactly also why Jesus spoke in parable. So we're, for the time being, we're talking about the truth of poetry, but later on, we get the Gospel of Luke, we talk about the poetry of truth. You see, why we have these things that are elusive. And are they elusive because they're shackled by the muse and they're trying to tell us a la de da story? They don't want to, don't want us to really see what's going on? Or are they elusive because they want the news about what's real and what has happened to break inside us? You see, if the, for example, if I say to you, the Jews killed Jesus, you see, Well, I've communicated a piece of the Revelation. There's some historical truth to that. It's a little more nuanced than that, but there's some historical truth to that. It's designed to go off someplace else so that now you have a perspective on it, you know who the Christ killers are, and, and therefore you can reorganize yourself in the same old sacrificial way that's been going on since the beginning of time. But the parables of the New Testament, the story is told... So that the realization, when it occurs, is the realization that I am a persecutor. You yes, see, I'm the one who walked by the the man on the road. The Good Samaritan did not, you know, and so on. It's in me. You yes, see, uh, so that changes everything. What goes off inside one is that I'm a crucifier, and then you have the then you have a real breakthrough. If what comes across is the Jews crucified Jesus, then you don't have a breakthrough. It's yet to happen. And that's why the elusiveness of the paraclete is an elusiveness whose goal is to have real consequence inside the person. And I say inside, outside. That's, that doesn't mean anything, but in the life of the, of the person. And something that will have a moral, very powerful moral reverberation. And in order to do that, Robert Frost has a wonderful poem, which is about Job complaining later on, after it's all happened, you know, why did this happen? And God says to him, it had to seem unmeaning to have meaning. It had to be totally baffling. Now, there's another take on the story of Job. I just put a footnote here. But in terms of the sort of traditional interpretation of the story of Job, Uh, It had to seem baffling and totally meaningless in order for certain things to give way so that its real meaning could break in on you. Similarly, the parables in the New Testament and supremely the cross itself. The cross itself is the great scandal, Paul says. It's an absurdity to the Greeks, a stomach block to the Jews. Well, uh, it is true. It makes no sense. It's like a huge parable waiting to go off. Wallace Stevens said it really marvelously. He said, the poem must resist the intelligence almost successfully. And that's such a tease, you know. The poem must resist the intelligence almost successfully so that it awakens this fascination. And so we go for it. We let it in, and then it goes off. And when it goes off, it doesn't mean that we can then turn it into some kind of prose explication. But it means a breakthrough has occurred. Okay, so we have the two kinds of poetry poetry operating under the muse and poetry operating under the paraclete of the Holy Spirit. In Gerard's first really important book, uh, Deceit, Desire, and the Novel, he analyzes the modern novel by modern, I mean, beginning with Don Quixote and going through Dostoevsky. And he shows that the great novelist, now we're leaving the realm of sacrifice and the cultural question behind this has to do with uh, the mimetic nature of human uh, relationships, and uh, in there, Girard argues, I think, brilliantly, that the great novelist got caught up in the whole melodrama and sociodrama uh, of mimetic desire, and the great novelists were those who finally, finally broke out of that, finally came out of it, and came to their senses and looked back on it and began then, in retrospect, to see it for what it really was. Proust, Stendhal, Flaubert, Dostoevsky, etc. And they revealed it. And so Girard has a nice dichotomy, which is the Romanesque truth and the romantic lie. The romantic lie is that uh, all my desires come, as Freud said, right spontaneously out of myself, and they're all a testimony to my uh, Elon Vital or something. The more I have the the more uh, alive I am and so on and so forth. That's the romantic lie. Mm-hmm. And the Romanesque truth is that the desires that turn the social machinery are mimetically aroused and socially constructed. And this works better in French than in English because the word for the novel in French is roman. So when Gerard says... The Romanesque truth and the romantic lie, the Romanesque truth, the English version of that would be the novelistic truth, the truth that the the great novelists reveal, which is that they show that this whole thing is generated by models and rivals, and and, uh, no desire really gets rolling until there are other desires desiring the same thing, and then it really takes off. By mimetic, of course, I mean imitation. And it's the kind of imitation that happens when the example I use in the book, for example, is you're standing in a sale table and uh, there's nothing on it particularly you want. And then somebody comes along and reaches for one. And there's just a, one of these left. And then you start to think, well, I don't know. And you know that if you start to show interest in that, then the other person is not going to let go of it. And so you sort of look over here hoping that your disinterest will have a certain effect on that person and then he or she will put that down and go to something else and you can go for it. But you can't go for it right away because that would show that you were a slave to their desire and you wouldn't want to reveal that to yourself or to anybody else. So you have to bide your time and then go for it. This is one of those things we know but we do not know. And as soon as we know it for sure, the game's up. Then as soon as we we walk around realizing that's what's going on, then we can never get into it the way we used to. I mean, we try. And with the help of certain s- stimulants, uh, we can still still, to some extent do it. But basically, this is what Girard has done. He's, he's thematized this whole question of nomadic desire. In any event, I, I mentioned the Romanesque truth and the romantic lie. Because that's just a version of what in the book I call the, the uh, struggle between myth and gospel in the world. Gospel not here in an in evangelical sense, uh, but in the sense of that truth-seeking force that will not be satisfied with mythic explanation. Now, what we have to realize is the mythic ex- explanation is absolutely essential to conventional culture. The uh, Babylonian Talmud is right. Right. It's better to have some kind of romantic version of what happened in the past than to actually go back and see what happened. Uh, So myth is very important to the conventional cultural arrangements and to ordinary psychological adaptation. So you know what? Sometimes, I mean, this makes me sound like I'm doing something more important than I am, but uh, sometimes... I find myself in situations where uh, I'm just saying some of these things like what we're talking about here, and the uh, resistance that I encounter is can be pretty amazing. And that's, I mean, one must always factor in that resistance, you know. What was Kipling's, when you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too? <laughs> it's pretty amazing sometimes. But you begin to talk about these things, and suddenly somebody is kind of thinking, "Ah, that's a bunch of intellectual garbage. Why are we talking about this? And it's because, I think, among other things, I mean, maybe it's because it's boring or something, but I think it's because our psychological adaptations are based on these associations, identifications, group identifications that are very powerful and important for us. And, And the New Testament is just a piece of dynamite which is what Paul called it because Jesus says things like I didn't come to bring peace but a sword this this gospel revelation will blow families apart now not because it's the thing that's blowing families apart in our day is something else but uh, it will blow them apart because they won't be able to refuse they won't be able to refuse as a family by expelling the unwanted one therefore they won't have any mechanism for creating that solidarity What I'm trying to say is um, that ultimately the two literary genres are myth and gospel. What we call literature in our world today is somewhere in between. I would say the greatness of literature can be measured by the degree to which it is driven by the gospel imperative and freed from the mythological imperative. Nevertheless, what I want to emphasize is the power of the old system the grip of the old system which the new testament is right in speaking of in terms of the grip of sin the very powerful grip of the old system because of its social because the social and psychological reflexes that are a part of it are essential to culture and psychological adaptation as we know it so next quote in my series of quotes here this from Cesario Bandera. He's a, uh, a brilliant scholar and uh, literary critic, and he's written a very great book called The Sacred Game. He's also an expert on Virgil, among others. He's an expert on classical poetry, particularly Latin. From Cesario's book, the of the sacrificial system is at stake unless its own truth is sufficiently hidden. The non-sacrificial revelation uh, begins, of course, with the Hebrew Scriptures, it begins with Abraham and Isaac, Cain and Abel, etc., uh, etc., et all the way through the prophets and so on. But it reaches its, as Christians see it, its, it's full and final revelation at the cross. So you have the sacrificial system, which depends on foundation sacrifices or collective murders, and the non-sacrificial revelation. Cesario says the pressures on the non-sacrificial revelation are enormous. And he goes on to say, not only the physical pressures, the silencing of any witnesses to the truth, but the pressures on the truth itself, ranging from honest failure to understand it, which can be seen even in Christ's disciples at the beginning, to the sacralized and urgent need to distort it. We can't scapegoat those who did that. Had we been there, we would have done it too. It just shows that we all, in fact, are crucifiers. And that now we were just crucifying those who we thought were crucifiers, But it was the same thing, you know. So we look back, we have to forgive, remember that. We can't now say, oh, well, they scapegoated the Jews, therefore we can scapegoat them. We have to look back and say, forgive them for they know not what they do. Nevertheless, we do know enough to know that we shouldn't go that way. So Cesario says, this latter possibility is inherent in the sacrificial system itself, which must have at least a basic operational or pragmatic knowledge of the truth in order to function effectively. It must know enough of the truth in order to be able to manipulate it or interpret it to its advantage." Quote. This knowledge has to be latent. It cannot be explicit. So when we go back and we say, look, these people, after they killed their victim, they came up with this myth which made the killing of the victim seem like the most important thing in the world to do, the greatest breakthrough, and they gave them a cause to celebrate and something to reenact in their rituals and so on. Last week I quoted the Nimroff poem. At the very end, he says, Statue of the Etruscan Warrior in the Metropolitan Museum. They used to sell pictures of it in the museum bookstore with the ancient genitals blacked out, you know. And I tried to make a little comment about that in terms of modern our modern fixations. But the point is those who who gave rise to the myths, we can't say those who invented myths. It wasn't contrived that way. It really does come out of the social madness of the moment. It comes out of a kind of social contagion and in a sense produces itself. Nevertheless, those who gave shape to the myth, knew enough about things to know what had to be veiled. They knew which scene needed a fog filter. You see what I mean? And they gave it that. That's what the myth is. And therefore, you 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 have to see, as sothario sees, that they had to have an operational knowledge of the truth in order to be inspired to cover it up. Now, this operational knowledge of the truth cannot be at the cognitive level. If it's at the cognitive level, the game is up. You see, this is the whole point. Now, for example, as soon as it's at the cognitive level, that doesn't mean you automatically have a conversion. If it's at the cognitive level and no conversion ensues, which is very often the case, what you then get is propaganda. And there's a huge difference between myth and propaganda there is this operational knowledge but it cannot be explicit it has to be vague and it can't be clarified or to speak in biblical terms the right hand must not know what the left hand is doing or as i said before the myth makes it possible for us to see without seeing to hear without hearing now if this is the case if in all of us is a kind of native realization of what it is that must be obscured, then I think we, keep, we get to the heart of what Tertullian said and gave rise to a lot of theological and philosophical speculation, which was anima naturalitura Christiana, the soul is naturally Christian, which is absolutely baffling, except, I think, in anthropological terms. It's naturally Christian because it knows enough about the foundational sacrifice to know that it has to be veiled. Therefore, it it has already some latent, unconscious recognition of the crucifixion. And all that has to happen is that that crucifixion has to be revealed in some irrepressible way, in some way that cannot be mythologized. And the game will be up. And that's why Jesus says in the Gospel of John, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. The myth will be exploded, and slowly but surely the mythological power will be destroyed, and nobody will be able to join in those great collective acts of victimization and believe the myth that justifies them. Now, it's, it takes a long time. He also said the paraclete will be going about bringing this state of affairs about and may take thousands of years. Nevertheless, it will be set in motion by the revelation that cannot be mythologized. Now, Christians, of course, mythologized it, but never permanently or effectively. It always kept giving rise to moral misgivings and contrition uh, and unease and restlessness. The restlessness that Augustine talks about is a moral restlessness, among other things. Tertullian says the soul is naturally Christian. When we say all of us, have some vague, latent, native realization of what it is in the past that needs to be covered up. That's a way of saying the soul is naturally Christian. The poet is, in a sense, the first mythographer. The poet is the singer of the song, the song that tells us... And this, by the way, is what Virgil wanted to do. Virgil wanted to tell about the founding of Rome in a way that would just, you know, make everybody stand up and salute. The poet is the mythographer... In order to be a good one, he or she has to be able to know what has to be veiled and to be very good in veiling it without eclipsing it entirely because if it's entirely eclipsed, the story does not have its power, its cathartic power. The sacrifice has to be seen a little bit. That's why Burkert said, when you read these myths, you have all this celebration going on, but you sense this dark background. If you didn't sense it, the celebration would be over. I talked last week about the, the Mexicans having their goat sacrifices. They started using uh, livestock guns, you know, and suddenly the catharsis was gone. They forgot their dance steps and so on and so forth. You have to have enough of that cathartic violence in there, but it has to be veiled. It has to be somehow obscured. The poet knows this, and the poet is the mythographer. He knows this, and he knows it better than most people, he or she, because he or she is in the business of providing a a vivid but not too vivid recollection of it. And so, I would say there are two things. The soul is naturally Christian, and the poet is naturally an evangelist. Remember, when I say the soul is naturally Christian, I don't mean that everybody's a Christian, or even that Christians are. Uh, and when I say a poet is naturally an evangelist, I certainly don't mean that every poet is an evangelist. But I would say that there is inchoate or latent in every poet the evangelical impulse, the evangelical itch, which is to take the veil away and reveal it. And this is the amazing thing about Virgil. He did not want to do that, but he couldn't help himself. He knew too much. He knew too much. And try as he did to veil it in some really riveting and, mo- and morally uplifting way, he couldn't do it. And all his poetry failed for the rest mm-hmm. of the reason. And so, when he gets to the end of his life and he wants to burn the Aeneid, I think it's because he's afraid of what he has done. He's afraid that he has told too much of the truth. He would have recognized immediately the wisdom of the Babylonian Talmud. And he would have looked at the Aeneid and said to himself, there's too much truth in there. A casual reader might not stumble upon it, but you don't have to be a trained literary critic to stumble upon it all the time. All you have to do is read carefully. And especially, all you have to do is read it through eyes awakened by the spirit of the paraclete, and then you see it everywhere.